what I think is really needed, you know, is is we need to, you know, this this our second uh, chief of space operations is going to make a big difference in shaping what this organization is going to be like in you know 30 to 50 to 100 years from now. And just like investing, you know, it's compound interest. You have to invest early for it to be someplace important. And so the message in particular to researchers and junior officers matters. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink, a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Hello and happy holidays. This is the last episode of the year. The Defense and Aerospace Report is the parent to the downlink and it is taking a wee break for the holiday season. So that means the downlink will be back on January 6th. And now to what's in store for this week's episode. We've got a stellar lineup to discuss the United States Space Force, because in case you forgot, this week, December 20th, marks the service branch's third birthday. And there's a lot of work still to do to make the Space Force a truly independent military branch that's fit for purpose. There's a new chief of space operations, General Chan Salzman, if you're interested. In September, we covered how he holds the opportunity to shape the Space Force for many years to come. And yes, this week, the National Defense Authorization Act did finally pass through the House and Senate. But this is just a precursor to an actual 2023 budget, not an appropriations bill. The top line and possible force strength may yet change. But for your reference, the NDAA authorizes a Space Force budget that looks like it's just under $26 billion. That's everything, including the $1 billion for personnel. That's a mere 3% of the entire National Defense Budget Authorization, which stands at almost $858 billion. The White House budget requests CAPS Space Force military personnel at $8,600, with just under 5,000 civilians. To compare, SpaceX is thought to employ roughly 10,000 people, and Blue Origin reportedly has 6,000. More on Space Force in just a moment. Now, because this is the last episode of the year, we're also going to hear what my guests believe are the most consequential developments for space, to space, or from space for Earth. My guests this week are already known to many of you who have been listening for some time. They are Peter Gerritsen and Chris Stone. Both of them are Space Force think tank policy wonks and book authors, and they're joined by Stephen Melvin, who manages the Navy Reserve's space cadre. Here's our conversation. Hello, gentlemen. Peter, Chris, Stephen, welcome back to the Downlink. Thank you. Great to be here. Thanks very much. Appreciate it. This is not just the end of the year episode, but also a celebration of sorts of the United States Space Force birthday this week. Now, none of you are new to the downlink, but for those in the audience who are, take a moment and briefly introduce yourselves. Chris, you're up first. Sure. Uh, My name is Chris Stone. I am the Senior Fellow for Space Studies at the uh, Mitchell Institute Space Power Advantage Center of Excellence in Washington, D.C. I have uh, been working in the space world for nearly 20 years, 12 of which in the D.C. sphere, 
and I'm also the author of a book called Reversing the Tao, a Framework for Credible Space Deterrence. And Peter? I'm Peter Gerritsen, a Senior Fellow in Defense Studies at the American Foreign Policy Council and co-lead of its Space Policy Initiative. I'm the co-author of the book Scramble for the Skies, the Great Power Competition to Control the Resources of Outer Space, and they have a forthcoming book coming out in uh, February uh, called The Next Space Race. And finally, Stephen. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Um, I'm afraid my credentials uh, aren't nearly so illustrious as my counterparts here. Uh, I have the great privilege of having uh, been on orders to stand up U.S. Space Command. Uh, I'm a Navy reservist. And in my last job, I was the space cadre lead for the Navy Reserve. So I bring a slightly different perspective uh, than, than my counterparts here. We're starting with the Space Force as this week marks its third birthday. And starting with Peter... And gents, you know that you can jump in at will. But Peter, I'm asking what feels like the toughest question first. What was the most important development for the Space Force this year? Good, bad, or ugly? Well, actually, I think the most important development is that it seems to have swallowed the Space Development Agency and its forthcoming, you know, 77, some more than uh, 120 some satellites. And the talking points don't seem to have changed. So the, I have uh, I have at least some hope that the innovative and you know, scrappy, fast-moving approach that SDA has had will, in fact, transition to the Space Force and will remain with them culturally. But what is it about the talking points that you find so dismaying? Not dismaying. Um, I, I, I think it's good that the talking points have stayed the same. Uh, from when SDA was outside of the Space Force to now that they're in. Um, you know, their their focus on cost and schedule, their focus on multiple tranches, uh, moving quickly, trying to make use of, uh, of commercial platforms. I think those are uh, useful directions. I think a proliferated LEO architecture is a, is a good growth area right now uh, to cope with some of the problems that we have. So I think from an acquisition perspective, the fact that SDA does not seem to be uh, having its wings clipped is a very good sign. And Chris, what about for you? Well, for me, I think there's a couple of things that are really good, uh, but I'll stick with the things that are concerning since that's more exciting. First thing is the budget. Um, a lot of people are discussing about how, how great the budget was and how it was a 40% a 40 increase over last year. And what's annoying um, a little bit to me is that it's really not 40% increase if you look at the actual numbers. 54% of the uh, of the budget is actually consolidation. So it's SDA, like uh, we, we just heard about coming in, all their personnel and, and their funding lines. And it's also the Space Force personnel line, which was part of the Air Force budget last year. So over half of the so-called growth is coming from transitions only. And then about 20 some percent are really the only growth feature uh, of anything. And that's more in a little bit of classified programs and a little bit of missile warning and tracking, which includes a lot of the, the SDA programs. On the other side is the strategy policy realm. And of course, finally this year, we got the national defense strategy and the national security strategy. They finished the space the strategic review. 
and we're not, well, we didn't see what the review said. You can see a lot of pretty much what is going on by just the quotes from like Assistant Secretary of Defense Plum and just in the language of the space priorities framework is that we're pretty much getting the same strategy viewpoint that we had back during the Obama administration timeframe, same major planks of resiliency, norms of responsible behavior, and 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 deterrence through resilience, which, as we've talked about before, is really not not a deterrent. And then the, the one of the newer things, even though it's been part of the discussion, is arms control, which is something that people have talked about as part of the norms discussion. But um, so with with all that, it's kind of kind of disappointing in the sense that while we we've seen some increase in classified spending, not a whole lot. Uh, if you include inflation between seven and nine percent, that really shows more of a flat budget, and it's still less than three percent of the entire DoD budget. So if we're really going to get after the problem sets in space and the threats, uh, we're really not going to do it with what we have still so far. Uh, and yet the, the the Department of Defense and the administration seem to always want to talk about how much they're investing in it. And so I think we're we're still not where we need to be. But based on what the policy is, uh, the budget reflects that. And I think that's just kind of more of a, uh, I would classify that as more of a, a mixed bag. There are some good things in it, but for the most part, it's after three years, I was hoping we'd be a little further along toward getting after space superiority. Well, Chris, let me follow up on that. What should be done, say, in the next 12 months or perhaps even 24 months, either by the Space Force or the administration or perhaps even through legislation to, you know, meet what you envisage for an independent Space Force? Well, um, this is one of the good news items, um, sort of. That is that the recently passed NDAA does have a language in it calling for a study that actually gets after offensive and defensive means necessary for deterrence and for active protection, excuse me, active protect and defend missions. And so while we've been studying this forever, uh, at least the Congress is getting more specific and asking the Space Force for, for things that because of policy restraints, Space Force leaders have not either been able to or have been directed not to speak to in forums and hearings with members of Congress and the Senate. And so I'm hopeful that since that's a fairly quick, uh, I believe it's a 90-day suspense from time of passage, that by early next year, before the posture hearings kick off around March or April, depending on on when the budget rolls out, that hopefully we'll see General Saltzman, the Chief of Space Operations, roll that out and discuss it at least in, in private hearings, executive session because of classification, and even more so, I think, important and unclassified hearing as well. So I'm hopeful that that will lead to something. But I'm also realistic to know that there have been many of these ordered before, and a lot of them never get either implemented or they never even get delivered to Congress because of various internal executive branch issues. So we shall see, but it still was very nice to see that level of detail in the congressional questioning. And Stephen, you know, from an outside, uh, somewhat outside point of view, but that's very much involved in space. I mean, what would you hope to see in the next, say, 12 to 24 months that would actually bolster an independent space force? So, so before I kick off, I, I realized that I probably should have said during my introduction that uh, even though I do have a, a Navy Reserve affiliation, uh, I'm not speaking on behalf of the Department of Defense, the Department of the Navy, the Navy Reserve, uh, or any military organization. My opinions are my own, and and uh, uh, I, I bear full responsibility for anything I say here. 
Um, so in the next 12 to 24 months, uh, there's a lot of things Space Force could do. And obviously your question is getting at what should they do? And and in my personal opinion, Space Force is both an in-case and a for-the-future organization. They're in case the balloon goes up and, and they they need to defend what's on orbit today to help make sure that our, our ships, our uh, soldiers, our airmen have what they need for today's fight. But they're also a for-the-future organization. Um, these are the bigger issues that, that they're going to need to address as humanity finally escapes the cradle of Earth, right? Uh, this, these are going to be the questions of the how do you deal with a, a nation here on Earth or a violent extremist group that, that wants to threaten an industrial orbital platform or a colony on another celestial body? Uh, you're either there to take care of the problem or you're not. And right now, the preponderance of culture, resources, focus in the Space Force is, is leaning towards the in-case part of the organization. Makes perfect sense. They have to explain to a Democrat government, all our all our voters and and the, the people who represent them, why they're spending today's dollars. You know, it's not it's not just blood; it's also treasure. Uh, you can see this in numerous examples, uh, all the way from their motto, which makes sense in a geocentric universe, uh, to their public statements and more. But at the same time, they're going to have to plan for tomorrow. They they can be the best organization humanity has at defending orbital assets. That does no good if they're trying to ensure that another nation isn't bombing a future Mars colony from an orbit thousands of miles away from here. Uh, so on, on the flip side, they're also doing some great things in like the recruiting videos. They have a great recruiting video where they say, maybe your purpose on this planet isn't on this planet. So over the next 24 months, 12, 24 months, I would love to see both a, a better balance of the for today and for tomorrow parts of the organization and and perhaps a little more emphasis on the what are we going to do for long term uh, because an independent space force is going to have to deal with those issues long term uh, jim collins uh, in both built to last and good to great kind of laid it out for us a successful organization takes care of today's needs but also plans for tomorrow's success and that's what i would love to see if I could jump in real quick here, Laura, um, one of the issues that I've seen that's related to what I was mentioning before you chatted, uh, Stephen, was the fact that I also was part of helping stand up U.S. Space Command. And the great thing about U.S. Space Command is they have a unified command plan that says their area of responsibility is 100 kilometers and up. But yet, what are we spending most of our time creating structures for? Terrestrial support operations. So as much as I understand the importance of protecting our terrestrial support infrastructure. It's very important, but you can't get after the threat in space or the future lines of commerce and things that you and, and, and I, and of course, Peter like to talk about if you're so focused on that. And because in our system of, of how our military is structured, a US space command as a combatant command is the one responsible for the requirements that the services have to organize, train and equip for. And as long as you have um, a terrestrial focused mindset in charge of that organization, um, instead of a Space Force person that understands that piece, we're going to continue to swirl. And the other thing I'll mention is I've been in several meetings uh, and dinners and such where people have said that, um, you know, Space Force people have said, you know, we would love to take take in more funds and be able to do more things, but the, the, the Congress has artificially, you know, stopped us at a certain number of billets and a certain number of dollars, and we just don't have the infrastructure to absorb a lot more until that's taken care of. So there's a lot of things that have to happen to get to that that future. You know, hopefully the study and others will will be pushed a little bit harder by Congress. But until then, I'm a little unsure of if it's going to be in 24 months. I hope so. 
I, I have one more footstop. I, I, I mentioned Jim Collins's books, but uh, I think I've done a great disservice in, in failing to reiterate the fact that there's an awesome article out there called Battle for the Soul of the Space Force, uh, written by one Peter Gerritsen, uh, which probably would serve as good reading for, for most of your listeners, if they haven't already. And this next question I'm going to throw out to all of you. What important action over the last 12 months has the Space Force taken to meet the challenges from both China and Russia, and perhaps to a lesser degree, Iran and North Korea? And what do they need to do in the next year with all the understanding that this is a longer term project? So in my view, um, there are a few things at the policy level that I think are helpful in the sense one of them is recognizing, as I've been arguing for years, that our space infrastructure in orbit is part of critical infrastructure. And as, as a part of that, it needs to be defended. Uh, however, um, I have not really seen a whole lot in any of my, you know, from, from my vantage point here at the think tank world of, of any real action taken to get after the threat. There's a lot of push toward, like I said, resiliency with proliferated LEO constellations, more satellites, more targets kind of a thing. Um, there are still the same push for norms of behavior, such as the UN vote um, and the General Assembly, as well as the Open Committee on Test Ban for Kinetic ASATs, which both China and Russia voted no on both times. So in my view, while um, some believe it's still a good step forward, until those two countries that have been creating the lion's share of debris and doing most of the testing uh, buy into it, that they will continue to do whatever's in their best national interest. And I'm a little concerned about that, obviously. So I think we have a lot of work to do. And I think more than just constantly believing that attacks will be limited to reversible means, we need to be prepared for more. And I, I'm not sure we're quite there yet. But hopefully, uh, in a lot of that, that, that classified program increase in budget, which wasn't much, hopefully, a lot of those RDT&E, those research and development programs, are fielded quicker than just sitting there. So we'll see what happens. And Peter, I really do want to hear from you on this. I mean, what does Space Force need to do in the next year? It'll be the fourth year. We're entering the fourth year to actually, you know, meet these challenges from China and Russia. I mean, we have, you know, just like Chris said, an increase in the idea of uh, proliferated satellites in LEO, thus creating, you know, more targets. But is that really the way? Is there something more the Space Force should be doing? Or are we just fine? Well, you know, let me let me try to answer that in a couple of ways. So I think there's a tendency for folks to uh, focus on the nearest alligator, you know, or the nearest rock that's falling on their head. And, you know, from a leadership perspective, I've never thought that was really what was required of leadership because, you know, organizations are actually remarkably good about reacting to something that, that's extremely close. And usually things that are extremely close have already got built bureaucracies that will see to themselves. They've already got constituencies that will see to themselves. And therefore, you know, the, the things that are like hot on the agenda for the most part are really on rails. Um, but where where true leadership is required is is for the long lead time items, for the things that you've got to build space for uh, to get after. You know, I have absolutely no argument that, you know, the getting after the near term, you know, threats that China and Russia pose in their near abroad. And you had asked in your earlier question, you know, what what has the Space Force done in this last year that is significant? You know, while I share Chris's disappointment that 
you know, we we don't see the equivalent of speaking softly and carrying a big stick of, you know, building actual uh, in-kind capabilities. What they have done is they've put a lot of work into the analysis of what they think makes those harder targets, but still just targets. Um, and they have stood up these two regional offices, um, you know, forward commands in uh, uh, Indo-PACOM and in UCOM that I think is exactly the right kind of partnership. You know, I, I think this, in general, the Space Force could be putting a lot of emphasis into creating, you know, a pole mill international cadre and deciding where it wants to put colonels and general officers and forward attache posts of spacefaring countries. But, you know, where I think the Space Force is called upon to truly sort of get over its two-year-old separation anxiety and start becoming a little bit more of a of an exploring, you know, child, uh, you know, three-year-old, you know, really gets to the core of where uh, civil and commercial space is going. And so to their credit, you know, in this past year, the Space Force sponsored three forward-thinking events to engage junior officers at the Air Force Academy to engage a range of academics for tech surprise at one of our universities, and they engaged industry to think about, you know, what should be its planning assumptions for 2032 and 2045. And I think those are terrific events, um, but those need to percolate up to the leadership and, you know, what what I think is really needed, you know, is is we need to, you know, this this our second uh, chief of space operations is going to make a big difference in shaping what this organization is going to be like in you know thirty to fifty to a hundred years from now. And just like investing, you know, it's compound interest. You have to invest early for it to be someplace important. And so the message, in particular, to researchers and junior officers matters. And we would not be building the space force that we are going to need to provide to the American citizenry longer term if uh, if the space force does not you know get some backbone to push back on you know uh, both OSD policy and the Department of the Air Force you know to explain to them why cislunar why XGO is important why we have to be thinking about a bigger picture than just support to terrestrial combatant commanders. And they need to be partnering with the U.S. Space Command that I think already is thinking in those terms, you know, of space as an AOR. So that that's really, you know, it's it's laying the intellectual framework that will take, you know, two to three decades to mature. But that needs to happen, in my view, now. I'll I'll footstomp that. I I, I was going to mention the um, components, the Space Force components out in in, in the Pacific AOR, and and uh, as Peter mentioned, UCOMS is coming soon. If it's not there, um, I think it's early next year. Um, but but once they get that, to to Mr. Stone's point about uh, combatant commands are the ones that set the requirements. Uh, there's something about being in the room where it happens, right? As as the Hamilton musical go, goes forward, and and. If you're not in the room, then people are making decisions about what they think you might want, but they're not making decisions about what you want. And so having Space Force actually speaking to the combatant commands is just as important as having the other services at Spacecom so that they can articulate that that long-term vision, as as Peter said, uh, out, out into the future so that we know, not only know what we're doing today, what we're doing tomorrow, but what are we doing the day after tomorrow, and and so on and so forth. 
and why and why we're doing it. What is the value proposition? You know, that there's a huge teaching rule for the Space Force, just as there was uh, in the early Navy and naval theorists in, in teaching America to want to be a seafaring nation. There is a need by the Space Force leadership to teach America to want to be a spacefaring leadership and what that means and what those benefits are. And, and they haven't waded into that yet. They need an Alfred Thayer Mahan or a Julio Douay, right? Well, that, but they also they also just need to start talking about space in that respect, because as long as they continue to talk about space power and space combat power, meaning combat support and warfighting support, again, great, important, needed. Um, we're not going to be able to get people to understand the importance of, you know, why is it a big deal that China is operating an L2 with a comm relay? Why are they building a navigation and communication infrastructure in the next two to four years per their own statements while we're continuing to act like it's, you know, like, oh, we have too much to worry about now on Peter's point about the near term. And again, I get it, but, you know, we in order for, for a service to be able to get that education out, it's going to require a lot more openness of what the threat is and the reality of things and how important space is. And in my own experiences, I've had a hard time trying to get people to want to talk about those things. Because they say, oh, it's ethereal. Oh, it's it's hidden. You can't see it. And it's boring because if you talk about, you know, if you lose GPS timing signals or you lose communications, you know, that's a big deal. But it's okay, everyone's just so used to it being there. But for whatever reason, the cyber guys are able to communicate that a lot better for some reason, it seems, than the space folks. So that education piece is key. I agree with Peter on that uh, and Stephen as well. You know, just to follow there, though, I think cyber did take a very, very long time for it to actually percolate up to actually something that was taken seriously by policymakers, because, again, it was out of sight, it was out of mind, and if it wasn't really happening on your computer, then you didn't really feel the hurt or the pain of it. You know, I think it really became, you know, really clear to your regular American citizen taxpayer, you know, when they couldn't go buy gas, which was only just very recently in the past, what, year or so, maybe two years. It's because it is so out of sight, it is so easy for your regular American taxpayer and therefore, you know, the folks that hold the purse in the legislature to kind of put these things off. And I think space, unfortunately, suffers from a similar predicament. Perhaps what might move it along faster, and I'd love to know what you guys think about this, is the fact that we are, you know, ostensibly going back to the moon. China is sending three robotic missions or three robots to the surface of the moon. You know, they are rolling and moving forward, and that is seeping into the press. What we're doing is seeping into the press, and and it's being covered, you know, by the big media outlets. I mean, just this morning I saw on CNN that they were covering the NASA mission that uh, is out there to go measure the height of the seas. So I think it's creeping in. But I'm not really sure it's there soon enough. And, you know, what what can the Air Force possibly do to do to move that forward, to move that education forward into a, a greater realm? I mean, they don't even, you know, own their own PAOs. So, so, so look I'll, at look at the uh, uh, slip you just made there. You said, "What can the Air Force do?" Right? Did I say that? You said that, right? No, I did not say that. And, uh, oh gosh! All right, I've I've to just so, stick a needle in my eye. Indeed, I mean, 
Look, those of us who are space power advocates know that this is a temporary halfway house, that the Space Force needs to be its own separate department, that it is ill at home in the Department of the Air Force, and that you know the United States will continue to underperform in space power until it has a truly independent Space Force. You know, now is the Department of the Air Force or the Air Force in a position, you know, to assist that? You know, I, I, I sort of don't think so. I, but I'm sure you meant the Space Force. And what can they do? I mean, in one sense, I actually think... I, I definitely meant the Space Force. Like, nada. You know, I, I think people hand-wrung so much about this in the first two years. It's like, oh, people don't know we have a Space Force. And the airline didn't know that it was a real thing. And you know, and, you know, these new words like guardians and all that, you know, all this is going to so quickly fade to the background and become just normal that I just think there's no reason, you know, to to worry about it as, you know, as the conversation, you know, naturally evolves for people to be thinking about what the United States is doing in civil and commercial space, when we start seeing headlines about, you know, China looking to plan to get rid of Starlink and, you know, Russia threatening Starlink. You know, these ideas that people have thought about in abstract are, are rapidly becoming real around us. But the education, you know, of the United States as a spacefaring, you know, civilization um, and the value that that brings and the need to protect, you know, that commerce, those are those are just their messages that need to be in the doctrine that need to be, you know, in the mouths of the of the CSO. And and, you know, at least we could hope for a secretary of the Air Force that is not retardant of those things and does not dismiss the importance of protecting our strategic flank in cislunar and understands that, you know, the you know, that China is going to try to gain ground through its own strategic initiative in the space AOR and understanding you know, the, the linked role between our, our industrial base and national advantage and, you know, competition during peacetime, you know, those are all things that, that, in my view, every Space Force officer needs to be conversant about talking about. Well, I'll just give a quick example about about media. I know I know that that you mentioned, Peter, um, Starlink in, in Ukraine. <clears throat> if you look at the Ukraine conflict as an example of of media coverage, because a lot of people tell me, you know, whenever I talk to reporters, they say, yeah, there's a lot of space stuff happening, but some of it we don't know about. And a lot of it's out of sight, out of mind. Whereas the stuff we do spend a lot of our time reporting on missiles being fired, airplanes being shot down, tanks rolling, things you could take pictures of and see are the stuff that people are hearing about day to day more often. You know, there are articles that talk about GPS jamming and there are people that there are articles that are that are, you know, discussing Starlink situations and counter space activities on that front, but they're very far and few between, uh, comparatively speaking, to the rest. And so um, you know, for example, before the invasion kicked off again in earnest earlier this year, you know, there have been a lot of shows that were talking about future space issues with regard to the Chinese. Once the Russians started rolling in, that became the main thing. And so a lot of the the important strategic space topics kind of went to the back burner, it seemed, in a lot of the major news organizations. Now, obviously, Artemis kind of brought people's attention back for a few days. Um, but from a strategic military standpoint, it's very difficult to get the word out. And some of that's our own fault, our own fault, meaning, you know, our, our classification rules on what we share and what we don't share. Uh, and others is just, it's not as exciting to some people. So I think we need to find a way to show how that really impacts not only the 
Ukrainians, but also how it impacts the Russians. And I think once people see that, and that it's not just you know a nice to have, it's an imperative for commercial as well as military, I think that'll help a great deal. We, so we have a lot of work to do there as well. The one thing I'd like to footstomp is that in, in terms of our ability to convey that message and actually get um, uh, get a response from the public and the leadership and, and, and the rest of it, historically has not been great. And, and I say that in terms of anyone who's trying to make significant changes beyond the next election cycle and so on and so forth. Uh, you just see the uphill battle, no matter what side of the uh, environmental debate you're on, but the uphill battle with the global, global, global warming, because it's so far in the future, right? Uh, Jared Diamond, the guns, germs, and steel guy wrote a great book called Collapse, where he talks about how people will will see stuff right in front of them, but they will ignore it because it's the it's the boiling frog syndrome, right? You don't notice the temperature going up one degree uh, until suddenly it's too late and and you're it's it's over. And and so the the problem with an exponential technology, just to drive this this point home, is that you know the incremental changes are so so small. In, in the early stages, and then all of a sudden it takes off. And, and space is one of those, like cyber was, right? Uh, the reason cyber got so much attention in, in the 2000s and the 90s was because, you know, we had the dot-com boom, and you know, all of a sudden computers on everybody's desk. C- cyber probably should have been looked at in the 80s. We probably have a lot fewer problems with our operating systems in terms of security and the rest of it if, if people had, had thought those kinds of things through that. And I think we're going to see similar issues in space. As it starts to climb, as we start to see more people out there, uh, as Peter mentioned, uh, then, then we'll see more interest. The trick Space Force has, and, and this is my final point, they have to get ahead of that. They have to be the ones who are, who are ready when the problem hits, because it'll be too late to play catch up later. And on that note, let's take a look at this year as a whole in space. Space is a fast moving team sport. And I'm not just talking about supersonic speed satellites reach on orbit, but we've had new policies, new technologies, increasingly intense nation-on-nation competition, not just of the military kind. And while I know this is not really a fair question, I'm going to ask it anyway, or maybe it is actually to you, Peter. Peter, what's the single most important development in space for space or from space for Earth? this year and of course tell us why i actually think that that's probably easy um you know the the biggest development in my view well actually let me take that back i think there are two you know one i think is the one that's in the public imagination and that is you know to the extent anyone's following space they realize that now the united states has the ability uh, to get beyond geostationary orbit to do deep space with a human capable uh uh, ship. So, you know, and it makes the new space race seem real and tangible for the moon in the way that, you know, these small commercial landers haven't. But but more consequential than that, I think, when you think about compound growth and where things could be, the, the European Space Agency uh, decided uh, last month, late last month, that they were going to fund their space solar power Solaris program that had been that is this huge group of European ministers. And you know that signals the first serious entree by a group of US allies to think seriously about how space could not just observe carbon in the Earth's climate, but actually do something to change the energy system from space in a in a truly scalable manner. And 
you know, the, the scale of what solar power satellites would mean so incredibly dwarf. I mean, the largest thing in space today is, you know, 400 tons and has, you know, somewhere about 100 kilowatts, you know, and is about a football field long. And a solar power satellite would be on the order of 10,000 metric tons and, you know, seven kilometers, you know, across and have two gigawatts of power. That's no minor leap. Uh, the type of logistics, the type of launch, the type of in-space assembly and manufacturing, uh, a nation that pursued space-based solar power um, would have an industrial base to allow its space force to crush uh, a nation that didn't have uh, space solar power. So, and, think- and just to be clear to those who don't know this in the audience, when we're talking about space-based solar power, we're not talking about solar power that's used just for spacecraft. We're talking about solar power that is collected in space and then transferred to the surface of the Earth for use on Earth. That's right. For industrial baseload city-appropriate needs, you know, it, it is an innovation by taking your solar panels out of the shadow of the Earth you don't need storage. You don't need long transmission lines. You can put it directly, you know, toward the city that needs it. And it's dispatchable in the same way, you know, nuclear or coal is, except it's got like twice the duty cycle that uh, nuclear or coal plants have. So, you know, the realization of space-based solar power would be a really big deal. And the fact that the diversity of nations that fund the ESA voted in favor of moving forward on a technology development project, I think will bring in other countries. I mean, we some of your listeners may already know that China and Japan have had a longstanding program on space solar power, but I think this will bring in still more nations, and I think it'll eventually drag the United States in uh, because we'll be embarrassed that we want to be leaders in space and climate, uh, and it will just, uh, I think it already looks bad that, you know, we're being scooped by our European allies. And and I'm, I'm going to weigh in real quick because I can. Um, but you know, to Peter's point here, if you think at it, of it from a national security perspective, energy is isn't just about you know turning the lights on. You know, think about the entire war in the Middle East. How much funding would the initial Al Qaeda people have had if we'd have had solar-based power back in the '80s? You know, the oil money that was flowing into the Middle East was what helped fund a lot of that stuff. Um, the you, you can just look at the U- Ukraine uh, battle right now, uh, and I'm not going to get too deep in the woods there, but you know, there's a lot of cold people in Europe right now. If they were all on solar power, there would be a lot less uh, issues about uh, Russia's oil spigots. And Stephen, why don't you follow up and tell us what you think is the most important development in space, whether in space, for space, or from space for Earth? So so I, I will be honest with you. I don't, I don't have a single most important issue. Um, and part of that, again, is this is an exponential uh, growth, right? So so we don't necessarily know what's going to be the most important thing. We won't know necessarily for decades until we look back and go, oh, that was the most important thing. You know, Moore's Law is, is a great example of that. We didn't know how important computing was going to be when IBM first decided to put a PC on somebody's desk. And, and you know, Tandy created the TRS-80, a Radio Shack created the TRS-80, and, and you know, people started tinkering with it. Uh, and, and, you know, now everybody's got a computer in their pocket or on their wrist, right? Uh, and, and so we won't necessarily know the one single thing. Having said that, I think there's a lot of little things that we can point to that could necessarily be that person 
that individual thing. Uh, the one Peter brought up about the solar-based energy, and, and Japan actually was talking about it in January as well. Uh, absolutely, that's on the table. The components that, that Space Force has put out at the combatant commands, absolutely critical. Uh, the growth uh, of, of Spacecom, um, when they put, uh, I'm sorry, not growth in people, but it, it, the evolution of Spacecom as they put uh, more robust planning elements out at the individual combatant commands from a military perspective, that was that was critical. Uh, just the the issues that we're seeing in terms of the, what's in open source about space impacting the Ukraine fight and how Elon Musk's Starlink was able to allow communications when Russia decided to, to cut a lot of that stuff off. All of those things are going to play a factor. Which one's going to be the most important? Keep your eyes open. Stay tuned, sports fans. Oh, come on, Chris. Jump in here. Give me something solid. No more is law for you. Yeah, no, I, I will I will kind of connect with Peter's um, solar power related item and just say that I think this year, if you look at the statistics, will show that space launch, not only in cost, but in frequency, has gone up so much that that's part of the reason why you're seeing governmental entities like ESA and others pushing for things like this, because that was one of the biggest arguments against it, even as, as short term back as 10 years ago, was, oh, it costs you much to launch this stuff. And so because of the changing models that you've seen, in fact, supposedly tonight or tomorrow, I think it's tonight or tomorrow, not only are you going to see potentially, if everything goes well, um, SpaceX launched you know, in the, in the past few months, like three rockets within days of each other. Now, tonight, there's two launches scheduled within about five minutes of each other out of Cape Canaveral and Kennedy Space Center. So, and that, that follows is, this morning's launch. It's today. It's right. today's three launches. And just to go towards the cadence, just to to give our mm -hmm. listeners a bit of a, a a statistic here, SpaceX has been launching pretty much at a cadence of one launch per week this year. And Rocket Lab, for their part, since about midsummer, they've been launching once per month. So sorry to, to interrupt, Chris, but I do think no. it's an interesting factoid that just sort of no, proves the point. It is because I remember when I first came in the Air Force as a space officer and I was stationed at Vandenberg, Vandenberg, which is the West Coast launch that the first launch happened this morning at, would average maybe two to four launches a year. Cape Canaveral would also average maybe five to eight on a good in a good year. And this year, I believe the total U.S. launch is like around 68 uh, or pushing 70. And so that is pretty crazy, um, crazy good uh, if you think about it. So now we'll just have to see what happens as they continue to develop. Um, Rocket Lab is supposed to launch their first one from Virginia um, in the next few days. So they're expanding their their launch areas um, and a bunch of other kinds. So there's a lot of options out there. And a lot of people are seeing that. And I know Peter might have this stat off the top of his head. I don't. But the the market, the space market itself has grown quite a bit. And even though, you know, Morgan Stanley and others have been looking at several trillion dollars worth of, uh, of, of value in the near future, we're already in the hundreds and hundreds of billion dollars worth of value. And that's money that comes to Earth where people live. So it's not just because we're advancing space power, which is vital to our security and our, our commercial influence, but it's also important from a just day-to-day -day life standpoint. So this is a really interesting time to be, and I'm looking forward to seeing hopefully how we exploit that for the benefit of the country. And now as we look to the new year, 
which is when the downlink and all the other Defense and Aerospace Report podcasts will return, I think we should do something a little different. Here's our lightning round. Each of you will have roughly a minute to propose a toast or so with wishes for something space-related for the new year. And Chris, as I think, I don't know for sure, I'm just assuming, but I think you are the youngest of the group, but it should mean that you have the nimblest of minds on this panel. You're first. Are you ready? Sure. Um, I'm not going to sing Old Lang Syne or anything with my... uh with my voice, but I will say that I, if I was going to uh, propose a toast, I would, I would wish General Saltzman all the best in his new job as Chief of Space Operations and that uh, he will do the right thing and stand firm for what is necessary to protect our, uh, our national interests and those of our allies in space. And I think with, with that, uh, that's what I will probably just stick with. And Stephen, you're up next. I'm not sure if uh, if that just means I'm in the middle a- uh, age group or uh, anyway. Uh, my, my toast is is a little broader. I'm I'm going to wish humanity another year of exponential growth as we uh, advance towards whatever we may someday become. And Peter, well, I'll be more specific. I mean, I I would like to toast to the success of uh, SpaceX's uh, Starship because. Starship, if it works, will be a reusable, fully reusable, our first one, heavy lift, 100 metric tons or more spaceship that will mean so much to so many markets and humanity as a whole, you know, the potential to bring launch costs down extremely, perhaps as low as, you know, $10 million a launch, and as well as allow us to be able to land human beings on the moon to refuel things as well as, you know, to be its own sort of in-space giant X-37. So it is a a fantastic capability for a nation to have. And I, you know, I would uh, would toast and wish it success in its first launches. And for me, I would like to raise a glass, and I will do so, to say thank you. And I wish all my guests, especially the three gentlemen who are with me here now, a very happy holiday season and a wonderful new year. And also to the audience, because without you listening to the downlink, we wouldn't be here doing this. So here's to next year. Next year should be fantastic for space and hopefully fantastic for all of you too. Gentlemen, Peter, Chris, Stephen, thank you so much for coming on the downlink and see you next year. Thanks very much. Really appreciate the invite. Thanks, Laura. That's it for this week. If you like what you're hearing, follow the downlink on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. For the latest defense news and analysis, listen to the Daily Defense and Aerospace Report podcast hosted by Vago Maradian and listen to Cavish Ships to hear the latest on what's happening in the maritime domain. I'm Laura Winter, and thank you for listening. Thank you.